and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and his wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Verse 13. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Steve. Good evening, everyone. <coughs> Thank you so much, Colleen. Well, it's such a joy to be here. It's quite moving, isn't it? I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to turn around and look at the people. It's a bit like being in the round at the moment. And it's not only a joy to be together on Reunion Sunday, um, but it's also a huge honor for me to speak to you. Um, and so thank you for being here. And uh, in these last few weeks, we've been looking at biblical epiphanies, sightings of God, instances of prophetic visions of God. And we so need a vision of God in the times we're living in. Simon spoke from Revelation about John's vision, and then Charlie spoke about Solomon's vision from the Song of Songs, and tonight I'm going to talk a little bit about the scriptures in Daniel that Colleen has just read to us. In 2000, the National Gallery hosted an exhibition called Seeing Salvation. That title completely captivated me, the idea of seeing our salvation. And this exhibition explored aspects of how Jesus has been artistically represented for about 200 years. Three 20th century paintings of Christ that were exhibited caused a widespread public reaction. I'm just going to have a look at them, I hope. One, the first was The Light of the World by Holman Hunt, um, <coughs> which actually there's a version of in Keeble College. I really recommend that if you haven't seen it, you go and have a look. It's a powerful picture. I love it because it speaks to me of Jesus' intimacy with each of us and the fact that he'll come and knock on our personal door. And of course, you probably all know that the, the handle is on the inside, and so we have to open for him. The second picture was Stanley Spencer's resurrection. And um, the reason I love this is because of the, 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 the life in it. The resurrection is full of life, the people springing out of their tombs. You can't really see this one quite so well, but it's a powerful picture. Um, and Stanley Spencer caused quite a lot of controversy over it, um, but I have not had time to find out exactly why. <laughs> so I'm sure the people here who do know, but it's a beautiful <laughs> picture. And then the third one is Dali's The Christ, um, the St. John of, Christ of St. John of the Cross. And I love this because this shows... Jesus over the whole world. So this is a perspective-reorientating picture. Thanks. 
Jamie, for those. Now, artists obviously have been depicting Jesus for much longer than 200 years. I have labored up to the church with two huge books that we have. We're going to have to downsize all our books quite soon. But just this whole book is called Christ dans l'art, just Christ in art, and it's every single page full of different pictures that people have painted. And then this is a favorite of mine, Rembrandt and the face of Jesus. I mean, this is just two books, and there are thousands of books that are full of pictures of Jesus because people are so hungry to find out what he looks like. And why do people do this? Because Jesus is the most fascinating, a captivating person ever to have walked the earth. Comparing the influence of Jesus with that of some 20th century leaders, um, a journalist called Malcolm Muggeridge that perhaps only some of you will have heard of, uh, and a satirist as well, he wrote in, I think, about the 1970s, he wrote this, we look back upon history and what do we see? Empires rising and falling, revolutions and counter-revolutions, wealth accumulating and wealth dispersed, one nation dominant and then another. I look back on my own fellow countrymen, that's England, ruling over a quarter of the world, the great majority of them convinced, in the words of a favorite song, that God who's made them mighty would make them mightier yet. In other words, thinking they were better than they were. I've heard a crazed, cracked Austrian announce to the world the establishment of a German Reich that would last a thousand years. An Italian clown announced that he would restart the calendar to begin his own ascension to power. I've heard a murderous Georgian brigand in the Kremlin acclaimed by the intellectual elite of the world as wiser than Solomon, more humane than Marcus Aurelius, and more enlightened than Ashoka. I had to look up who Ashoka is. He was, was. He was an Indian emperor who paved the way for the spread of Buddhism. Muggeridge continues, I've seen America wealthier and in terms of weaponry, more powerful than the rest of the world put together, so that had the American people desired, they could have outdone an Alexander or a Julius Caesar in the range and scale of their conquests. All in one lifetime, all in one lifetime, all gone with the wind. Now England is part of a tiny island off the coast of Europe, threatened with dismemberment, that was quite prophetic, by the way, and even bankruptcy. Hitler and Mussolini dead, remembered only in infamy. Stalin a forbidden name in the regime he helped found, and dominate for some three decades. America haunted by fears of running out of fuel and troubled with memories of a disastrous war in Vietnam. All in one lifetime, all gone, gone with the wind. And Ravi Zacharias, when he quoted this, he added these words. Behind the debris of these self-styled supermen and imperial diplomatists, there stands the gigantic figure of one person because of whom by whom, in whom, and through whom, alone mankind might have hope still. The person of Jesus Christ. But what we note from Muggeridge's words is that this doesn't really tell us what Jesus looked like. What it does tell us is that none can compare with him. And actually, there is no description of Jesus' appearance in the Gospels. The only description that perhaps we're familiar with is in Isaiah 53, where we read, and we know well, he had no formal majesty that we should look at him, 
and no beauty that we should desire him. Even this doesn't really tell us about his appearance. His appearance. And so it is that these extraordinary visions granted to the prophets are the best way to try and convey the wonder of Jesus. All of these and innumerable other attempts to capture the visual Jesus remind us that in the end, for all of us, seeing Jesus Christ is a spiritual matter. And really, God forbid that any one image should capture that which cannot be captured. He is, as the old song says, beautiful beyond description. Now, Daniel saw this exquisite vision of both the Father, the Ancient of Days, and Jesus, one like the Son of Man, consecutively. He sees thrones set in place and the Ancient of Days taking his seat. He speaks of clothing white as snow and hair white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were burning fire. And then Daniel widens his gaze to include the future of all mankind and he sees a river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. And next, he sees in his vision, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power all peoples, nation, and men of every language worshipped him. This is what we've sung already this evening. I was so pleased. Uh, we didn't consult together, but it was wonderful to sing that song. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. These are things, friends, that we need to know and to hear in these days. In this vision... Daniel, in fact, is seeing the end of the world as all roads lead to Christ in eternity. And these are dazzling and glittering and exhilarating visions. But they come to Daniel in the context of exile in Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar. And in the context also of seeing visions of great darkness and destruction. Because in the same chapter, he's also seen visions of four beasts. And the fourth of these is the most terrifying and dreadful of them. Exceedingly terrifying, it says in verse 19. This beast made war with the saints. This beast speaks words against the Most High. And this beast wears out the saints of the Most High. Some of us can perhaps, you know, this might resonate with some of us uh, when we are facing difficulties and looking at a situation in our nation at the moment. But Daniel is also shown in this chapter the eventual destruction of all these beasts, and especially this very terrifying one. And this seeing that he experiences enables him to hold fast in times of terrible trial. And maybe it was that this seeing was the fruit of a lifestyle that was courageous and countercultural. In the opening chapter of Daniel, we find him fasting from fine foods and wines, and avoiding the rich food of the court against the wishes of his teacher. Then we see him in chapter 6, openly defying the order to worship only King Darius and praying openly three times a day towards Jerusalem. 
Daniel had a rule of life, something that we have sought to embed in this church. And this rule of life sustained him. And I think it's something that could sustain us because we're living in a time when we don't know what's going to happen. We don't even know if we're going to be allowed back in here next week. And so things are changing so rapidly and we need some stability in the midst of all of this. In chapter 1 of Daniel, we read that God gave him and his friends knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And that Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. And of course, he was in that training ground, which was effectively the Persian University of Babylon, not actually unlike Oxford. He became, in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he became ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. Well, none of us would disagree that we're living through tough times, really, when our need of God's presence and the certainty of Jesus' close companionship is as great as it's ever been. I think it's a dark time when there's no obvious way forward. There's no obvious way out of the pandemic. There's no obvious way to recover the economy. There's no obvious way to rescue our groaning planet. There is certainly no agreed way to do any of these things. So in such a time, what is God saying to us, his church? I think that one thing he is saying to us, this is what we've been talking about for these last weeks in the evening, is look at me. Fix your eyes upon Jesus, it says in Hebrews 12, verse 2. Why? Because seeing Jesus will guard our perspective and help us run with perseverance the race that is set before us. The visions that the prophets had changed them. Charlie often says how John's vision on Patmos changed him from a prisoner to a prophet. Because something happens to us when we see Jesus Christ. But what is this capacity to see? Is it a discipline of intimacy where we train our eyes to see in the dark, as it were? Or is it an unveiling whose origins are solely in God's sovereign decision? I believe that it's both of those things. There is a divine decision, but there's also a choice and a plea from us to see, as expressed by Moses in Exodus 33, where he says, Now, Lord, show me your glory. All those thousands of years ago, the same desire being expressed. Some people call this contemplative prayer. Others call it mysticism. In a way, it doesn't really matter what we call it other than it is a longing, but it demands slowing down and a rooted attentiveness to God. Whatever it takes for each of us in our different lives, we do need these visions. We need visions as dazzling, as glittering, as exhilarating as the ones that the prophets experienced and that Daniel experienced. We need this vision for our long obedience in the same direction. So I think that these visions of Daniel call us today to be inspired first to make a choice to dedicate our lives again, perhaps, to Jesus and the kingdom of God. That, of course, is only step one. Much more demanding is step two, which is to choose a lifestyle and follow it that will help us to do that. I guess I'm speaking specially to any students who are here this evening. Old and new students are pouring into the city at the moment in a very challenging time. 
Nothing like COVID has ever happened in any of our lifetimes. And like Daniel, the church in a way is we are in exile. I spoke last week about my feeling that the church is being ghosted and there is never any mention in the media of really places of worship, not compared to the other places uh, that people want to see opened up like uh, the theatres and cinemas, places of entertainment and so on. There's no acknowledgement in our nation at the moment of the role of faith in people's well-being. And so to that extent, <coughs> I think we are being, you know, it, the, the country's behaving as if we don't exist in a way. And Daniel calls us to courage in our spiritual disciplines. He calls us, he was very outspoken and daring. And he, I think he calls us to be daring. He calls us to <coughs> intentionality in our seeking of God's kingdom. I personally think things will probably get darker, but also the darker the world, the lighter, the brighter shines the light of Jesus. And the, the brighter will shine Jesus as he as we have his Holy Spirit in us, he can shine through us. Like Daniel, our perspective will be guarded and restored, I believe, if we see Jesus Christ in his glory and splendor, if we see the Ancient of Days on the throne giving him authority, glory, and sovereign power, and see all the nations and peoples of every language worshipping him. If we see these things, we are going to think differently about the terrifying and threatening things that are abroad in the earth at the moment, because we will see things in different proportions and perspectives. We'll also see that what and who looks powerful on the face of our earth are nothing, like that quote from Malcolm Muggeridge, compared to the spectacular sight of the Father and the Son Thomas Carlyle said, he who has no vision of eternity has no hold on time. As Christians, we should have a vision of eternity because Ecclesiastes 3.12 says, God has set eternity in the heart of man. We've got eternity in us. It's been put there by God. So let's be provoked by Daniel's vision. Let's pray, Lord Jesus, please give me a vision. Let me see the one who has authority, glory, and sovereign power, whose everlasting dominion will not pass away, even though we hear many threats of that happening. If we have a vision of eternity, because we see Jesus, we will be able to have a hold on time, which means that we will be able to live well. We will know that the darkness of today is not permanent and that justice in the end will prevail we'll know in our hearts as well as in our heads that the end of the story, which as Simon often says, is that the lamb wins. We need to know these things because we can be unsettled in the sorts of times we're living through. Our God is the God who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And now I'm not talking so much to a gathered crowd as to each individual. That's a message to each individual. I am with you always to the end of the age. This is Jesus who's seated at the right hand of the Father and who ceaselessly intercedes for us, the book of Hebrews tells us. This is who we need to see. So this evening, I don't know where each of you is at as we are gathered here. I don't think lockdown has been easy for anyone. And it may be that you're here and you feel a bit despondent and a bit discouraged 
by the seeming hopelessness of the national situation in relation to COVID or relation to the economy and work and so on or any other aspect. Or you may be discouraged and despondent because of personal things. Uh, we were talking with someone today who's, who had a very dear friend who died suddenly and it seemed these things seem, you know, why are people, why do young people disappear from our midst without any reason? We can't understand these times of suffering. And as Charlie and I are about to start a new season, you also are about to start a new season. So what better moment would there be than this to renew our spiritual disciplines, to kneel before the Lord? And we're going to invite you to come in a minute or two or three to come and um, ask the Lord again to kneel before him and say, I am yours and you are mine. To again determine to give him some time to meet with him and to agree with others, your friends, that you will try and do this so that there's some kind of accountability and someone can say to us, well, did you? Did you do it? Did you meet with him? These epiphanies experienced by Solomon, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Moses, Daniel and John and Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration changed the trajectories of their lives. 45 years ago when I was a postgrad, I had an epiphany and it changed the trajectory of my life. It was completely different because of that time. Of course, there have been lots of other moments since then, but it was a complete, I think the new word we're using, pivot, it, it was just a swing round very suddenly in a sense. Not everything changed immediately, but that moment meant everything was going to change. And these characters in the Bible that we're looking at, some of them were young and some were older when they uh, saw God. John, for example, had seen the resurrected Jesus at the transfiguration, but trials had come with all the events of the crucifixion. And when he was in exile on Patmos, Surely he needed a renewed vision, and that is what he received. And I think we do too, because we get fatigued in the battle. And when we're fatigued, that can skew our perspective, and it can really warp our decisions. Isaiah 30, verse 18 says, The Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. This is our God. He comes towards us and waits for us to receive him. So, Tonight, dear friends, God is for you. And I want to encourage you to ask him to show you his glory so that you might be strengthened and equipped for a new year here in Oxford. And God knows exactly what vision of him will work for each of you because he made each of you. And they won't all be the same. That is the glory of our God, that he knows what will speak deep into each heart and knows all of our thoughts. He knows how to reveal himself to each of us so that we will be changed. Um, I'm going to just finish with um, a short, I'm a bit of a Narnia addict, um, and just a little uh, paragraph because this uh, from uh, Lucy um, which expresses, in a sense, what I'm longing that we might experience, if you like. Look, 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 cried Lucy. Where, what, said everybody. The lion, said Lucy. Aslan himself. Didn't you see? 
Her face had changed completely and her eyes shone. Do you really mean, began Peter. Where did you think you saw him, said Susan. Don't talk like a grown-up, said Lucy, stamping her foot. I didn't think I saw him. I saw him. Right up there between those mountain ashes. Just the opposite of the way you want to go. And he wanted us to go where he was. Up there. How do you know that was what he wanted, said Edmund. Edmund. He, I, I just know, said Lucy, by his face. You know, that's a knowing. That's something that somebody knows. And that's, I think, what I long that we might be asking the Lord for um, this as we start a new year, really. So some of us probably here need a reset or, or another epiphany. But maybe there may be someone here who needs an initial, a first sighting. But whatever it is that you need, we're going to invite you to come forward for prayer. I think, is that now? Um, so maybe we could stand and I'll just pray. And then, oh, we're singing first. I'd just like to pray first. Lord, um, I, uh, we are here together. We know that you are here. Your presence is with us. And many, many of us, Lord, know you, but we long for more of you. We come sometimes with our vision a bit cloudy, and we become weighted down with uh, the, the work of every day, and sometimes we struggle to keep hopeful, struggle to keep positive, struggle to believe that there will be a good way out of where we are at as a nation. But we come to you tonight because we need you, and we ask you to reset our vision. We ask you that you would visit us, maybe not in here this evening, but that if in our heart we long and long to see you again in the spirit that you would answer us in your way, in your time, in your place, because you can come to each of us wherever you choose. And we ask these things, holy Lord Jesus, in your precious name, <coughs> because we love you and we long for you. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Amen. Thank you, Anita, so much. And uh, the reason we're going to give an invitation a bit later is because of social distancing. But we do and have been in the morning service inviting people to kneel at a couple of